Erwin Entz is here with us over the weekend. We're thankful for his presence. He's talked to us about beautiful community. Really glad to have Erwin with us. Um, I could tell you lots of reasons why he's qualified to be here with us. His experience, his gifts, uh, talents, training. Um, But I'll repeat what I said last night. The main reason that Erwin is here with us this weekend is... um, we as the leaders of the church feel like if we get to know this man better, we will get to know Jesus better. And so it's, God has given us a real gift and privilege and honored us uh, by bringing our brother to be with us this weekend. We're so grateful uh, for his time with us. And uh, if you weren't able to join us this morning or uh, yesterday evening for uh, his sessions on what it looks like for us to reflect the image of God by being a community in which all peoples, nations, tribes, language come together for the glory of Christ. We've recorded those and can get those recordings to you. Uh, I want to speak to you all this morning. We'll hear our scripture for the message in just a moment, but I'm going to talk to you all this morning on the subject living by resurrection power. Living by resurrection power, we've talked a great deal over this weekend about the challenges of pursuing a life of unity and diversity, even in the book that we are reading our text comes from in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul will say to them to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I want to talk this morning about what it actually looks like for us to strive to engage that pursuit and what we need if we're going to be about that business and that work. And so I invite you to hear now God's word from Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do bow before your throne of grace with thankful hearts. We thank you for your word. 
that is not dead, but that is alive, that is active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Our confession this morning is that we are all in this place, therefore naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must give account. Therefore you, Lord, know what we stand in need of. And so would you be pleased this morning to take my weak and unworthy efforts in this your word and use them to bless your people. If we stand in need of faith, Lord, would you give us that gift this morning? If we stand in need of encouragement, would you encourage us? If we stand in need of a correction, would you in your mercy correct us? That, they w- that we would be people who live not for our glory, but for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Over um, Thanksgiving weekend, I was uh, at the movie with my wife and two of, two of our four children, our 20-year-old daughter and 14-year-old um, son, and I don't remember what movie we were actually going to see. But during the previews, the, uh, we were shocked because we saw the preview of Lion King reimagined coming to the screen. Now, we got super excited and um, texted the other two children, the 26-year-old and the 22-year-old, did you know that there was a Lion King reimagined that was coming out on the big screen in, uh, in, in kind of live animation. And everybody got excited because uh, the original Lion King came out in 1994. My 26-year-old was two years old. And so we have grown up watching the Lion King uh, year after year after year. And so I practically know every line from that movie. And so I'm excited, and the, the genius of the people at Disney, here's, how, here's why I'm excited about it, because the genius of the people at Disney is that when they make uh, children's movies, they always have a, a number of lines in there that only the adults are going to get. And so you don't mind, uh, as a parent, taking your child to see a Disney animated movie because you'll probably enjoy it as well. Even folks without children will go see these movies for this reason. And so, I'm sure most of you all know the story of of Simba, the Lion King, heir to the throne, who had been tricked by his wicked uncle Scar into thinking that he had caused his father's death. And Simba ran far away from from the pride land as a young lion cub, and he he runs into this meerkat and warthog named Timon and, and Pumbaa, and he grows up with Timon and Pumbaa living by the motto, Hakuna Matata. No worries. Our problem-free philosophy, Hakuna Matata. But things got so bad in the pride land that Simba's childhood friend, the lioness Nala, comes looking 
for help. And guess who she runs into? She runs into Simba and Timon and Pumbaa. And here Simba's buddies had thought that he was just a fun-loving lion with no responsibilities like them. And Nala shows up and breaks the news that their buddy is the king. And of course, they don't believe her, and they fall out on the ground in laughter. And Timon says, lady, you've got your lions crossed. But Nala persists, and Simba has to admit that he was going to be the king, but that was a long time ago. And so Timon says, let me get this straight. You're the king, and you never told us? And Simba says, look, I'm the same guy. And then Timon's eyes get big and he says, yeah, but with power. It's one thing to know that your buddy is a great guy, but it's quite another thing if that guy has power. And what was the underlying message in Timon's words? Like, we all want to be close to power. If we know somebody with power, we think that's going to make life better for me if I get up close and personal, right? We've heard that phrase. It's not what you know. It's, it's who you know that matters. I remember when I was a senior in college uh, as an uh, electrical engineering major looking for, uh, for a job, and I was at the annual conference for the National Society of Black Engineers, and all kinds of companies come uh, to this conference, and you don't, uh, you don't know if they're sending out uh, representatives with influence or just somebody to fill a spot at their booth. And one of the members of my chapter said, I, there's somebody here from Motorola who I want you to meet. And my first question was, is this somebody, somebody who can give me a job? Because that's all I need to know. And once I found out that he was someone authorized to offer me a job, I put on my game face and kind of went to work. We want to know people with power and influence, and usually it's not simply because people with power can make things happen for us. It's because we know that that's the road to obtaining power and influence ourselves. But the problem is that our eyesight is often too limited. Our desires are often uh, too weak and our hopes are often too small because our eyesight and our desires and our hopes are often focused almost exclusively on ourselves. And what our text declares to us is that 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what was on display was the surpassing greatness of God's power. What was on display was the might of God's strength. And what is amazing is that the Apostle Paul says in verse 18 of our passage that this surpassing greatness of God's power is at work in those who believe in Jesus Christ. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is presently at work in those who follow Jesus. You want to be close to power? You want to to know power? You want power? Then you got to be close to Jesus. 
And let me be clear, I'm not talking about the power to just get a job, the power to do well in school, the power to do whatever we desire. I am talking about the power to live the life that God calls and that God demands that every living person lives. It is impossible to live out God's call to you and God's call to us apart from resurrection power. But the good news is that that is precisely what God has supplied. The apostle says so much in this prayer in these verses from 15 to 23, but I want to focus simply on three things this morning from verses 18 and 19. Three things. I want to talk about the hope of God's call. I want to talk about the riches of God's glorious inheritance. And I want to talk about the greatness of God's power. The hope of God's call, the riches of God's glorious inheritance, and the greatness of God's power. Our text starts in verse 15, but if we went and read the first 15 verses of this first chapter of this letter, we would hear the Apostle Paul beginning this letter praising God for his glorious grace, the glorious grace of God that is seen in God choosing to save rebellious sinners before the foundation of the world, God's glorious grace in his seen in his choosing to redeem them, to, to bring them back to himself uh, uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that, that blood through which the forgiveness of our trespasses comes, the, the lavish grace and kindness of God seen in revealing to us the mystery of his will, his purpose set forth in Jesus Christ to unite all things in Jesus Christ. And then Paul says that God has given the Holy Spirit to those he has saved as the down payment of their inheritance until they acquire full possession of it. We don't have time to do this justice this morning, but we ought not miss how much this chapter, indeed, how much this entire letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul grounds the Christian life in the work of the triune God. He has chosen us in Jesus Christ. The Father has blessed us in Christ, Paul says. He has chosen us in Jesus Christ. He has predestined us for adoption as sons in Jesus Christ. We have redemption uh, by his blood because he has done this for us in Christ. We are redeemed by Christ, redemption by his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses by his blood shed on the cross. And this blood bought redemption by Jesus Christ, which predestined by, was predestined by the Father, is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Far from some dry and confusing doctrine that should be avoided, the work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a cause for praise and rejoicing. Because of the firmness of God's salvation brought about by the plan of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
Spirit, because of the firmness of God's salvation, the apostle says in verses 15 and 16, he's led to thankfulness and prayer for the saints in the church of Ephesus. And saints simply means holy ones. It simply means those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a special title given to a few worthy Christians. It's a reference to those who have repented of their rebellion and their sin and turned to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if that describes you, then you're included in Paul's prayer. What does he pray in verse 17? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation is the work of the Holy Spirit, and the goal of this wisdom and revelation is the knowledge of God. It's not, uh, uh, it's to know God, uh, but it's not to know God necessarily for the first time, because as Christians, they already know God. But it's to know God better. It's to continue growing in the knowledge of God. That their life should uh, be one of growing in uh, the, the knowledge and the grace of God. And resurrection power is necessary if that's going to happen. And Paul knows that if this wisdom and revelation is continually given to them, then verse 18 will happen. The eyes of their hearts will be enlightened to understand the hope of God's calling. To understand the hope of God's calling. What is the hope of God's calling? I'm glad you asked. Let me get at this by saying a couple of things first before getting to that question directly. First, I want us to please note with, uh, that, that, with me that, that, that these are all plural pronouns. Every time in this passage Paul says you, it's y'all. Every time he says yours, it's y'all's. I don't know if there's a way to do that, Right? But I point this out because mine, our tendency is is to default when we read passages like this, to default to an individual and and privatized reading of it. Sure, these things apply to me uh, as an individual. They apply to you uh, as as an individual. But he is speaking here to the Christian community in Ephesus about his prayer for them collectively. He prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you all the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of you all's hearts enlightened, that you all may know what is the hope to which he has called you all. Second, notice with me, that the eyes uh, it's, it's having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Two things, uh, the hope of God's call doesn't start with what we see with the eyes in our heads. 
The hope of God's call begins with God opening up the eyes of our hearts. In other words, as I've already said, this is the Spirit's work. Paul says, uh, I'm not praying that you would enlighten the eyes of your hearts. I'm praying that the Spirit would, that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened by the Spirit of God. It's a prayer for what can only come from God the spiritual insight to grab hold of uh, and, and to live by the truth of God's purposes and not our own. The hope of this call is that through this enlightenment, we begin to realize in real time and real space all of the blessings that he prays God for in, cha- in verses 3 to 14 of, the, of this chapter, the, the hope of this of God's call is that through this enlightenment that is given to us we would begin to realize in real time and space the blessings that he has already praised God for indeed i think he makes himself much more plain in chapter 4 of this letter when he says to them in chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The hope of God's call to the followers of Jesus is intimately connected to the ways they walk together as his people. He calls us to harmonious, loving fellowship with him and one another in Jesus Christ. And you can guess where I'm going with this if you've been listening this weekend. This is across all barriers, race and class and gender and age, likes and dislikes, abilities, disabilities, socioeconomic status, and on and on. That is the call. And when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, what we realize is that we have no means of living out that call without the resurrection power of God. And we regularly have to ask ourselves, how are we doing? (laughs) How is it going? Where is there conflict? Where is there disruption where are there uh, the 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 popping up of the of the deep divisions and divides that that exist outside of life with in, in union with Jesus Christ where 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 are the things that are not the way i want them to be going on in our lives that's that's pulling us away from the hope of God's call in Jesus Christ. He wants us to know the hope of God's call. And this, brothers and sisters, this is not wishful thinking. When he's talking about hope, he's not talking about wishful thinking. 
He is talking about something that is an absolute guarantee that is based on the promise of God that we live into right now. Hope is a present reality that also points to the future. It points to forward to something that's coming and this hope is connected to what he has already said in chapter 1 that God is going to sum up and unite everything in Jesus Christ. It is, it is intimately connected to him repeating that again. He said it in chapter 1, right? God's plan uh, for the fullness of time to, to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. And in just a few verses after that, he says it at the end of our passage, right? That, that Christ, he put all things, all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What we look forward to is the fullness. What we look forward to is the fullness of life in the presence of God, unimpeded by any corruption in us, or in the world, we struggle because right now we are impeded by corruption in ourselves and in others. And we do endure life in this world that can crush hopes. While we look forward to the fullness of life in the presence of God, we are called right now to live out the implications of our new life in Jesus Christ. The hope of his call to live in a manner worthy of this calling, Paul says, humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and and the bond of peace, And we need the resurrection power of God if we're going to do that. Second thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to know and to understand are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And this is really parallel to the hope of God's call for Just like the hope of God's call, the riches of God's glorious inheritance points us forward to something that's to come in the future. And we ought to just kind of slow down and try to wrap our minds around what he's praying for. That you you all might know what are the wealth, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now look, he's describing this in terms that are meant to get you and I excited. The words that are included here are so that we might understand that there's nothing better, there's nothing that is more satisfying, there's nothing that's more exciting than belonging to God. The question is, do we believe that? (laughs) Like, if I came to you and I said, listen, you don't know this, you didn't know this, but I'm about to tell you, 
you are uh, the long-lost niece or nephew of Bill Gates. And he has decided, unbeknownst to you, uh, to write you into his will and so that uh, when uh, he passes away, you are going to become uh, the majority shareholder in Microsoft stock. I dare say you might get a little bit excited unless for some reason you are already wealthy beyond all reasonable imagination. <laughs> right? Chances are that would, that would gin up a little bit of excitement. But I, can I tell you that even that, whatever we could imagine as, as wealth and, and riches and possessions that, that we might have in this life that are material, it does not compare to what is being described here. In verse number 14, uh, as I mentioned already, he said that the promised Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The inheritance is life with God himself. Right now, in Jesus Christ, we get God, the Holy Spirit, as a down payment. The down payment is just the first installment, and it's always the same in kind as the full payment. What is the believer's inheritance if the Holy Spirit is the down payment? It's nothing less than God himself. The Holy Spirit is the pledge of your inheritance which affirms that God belongs to you. However, he makes a subtle shift in verse 18 from what he said in verse 14. When he prays in verse 18 that we know, that we would come to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, there's a subtle shift that's meant to blow your mind. Like picture a cartoon, mind blown. And here it is. The prayer here is not simply that we know what our inheritance is if we belong to Jesus Christ. It's that we know that we ourselves are God's glorious inheritance. That we are his inheritance. As one commentator put it this way, God's people comprising both Jews and Gentiles, this multi-ethnic cross-national people are his inheritance, his own possession in whom he will display to the universe the untold riches of his glory. And that commentator writes that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state might seem well incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ as from the beginning he chose them in Christ. As a consequence then, Paul prays that his readers might appreciate the extraordinary value which God places on them. He views them as in his beloved son and estimates them accordingly. And this is true of all who are in Christ. Christians, do you know who you are? 
Do you know who you are? I know that you're still struggling with sin. I know that you are still facing temptation day in and day out. I know that you can still look at your life and see the brokenness and see the things that hinder you from, uh, from, from, from really growing in, in holiness and righteousness. I know that you continue to disappoint yourself and you continue to disappoint others. You continue to hurt and harm yourself. You continue to hurt and harm and offend others. But faith in Jesus Christ, listen, faith in Jesus Christ does not mean that we no longer bear the traces of our former selves. It means that we are God's beloved. We are God's beloved. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 3 when he said to the the church there, he said to those Christians, he said, since you are raised, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you shall appear with him in glory in Christ. We don't die to die. We die to live. He says, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says, therefore, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on kindness and humility and meekness, bearing with one another in love. Right? Do you know who you are? Holy Beloved, not because you don't still have traces of your life without Christ's self. It's because in him, God sees his son. In you, in us, God sees his son, the beloved. Paul uses this kind of language to let us know that God himself has a rich, glorious inheritance, and it's us. Romans 8, verse 19, he put it this way, For the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We live by resurrection power now, knowing that God will put his beautiful, diverse, redeemed people on display for the whole creation to see the riches of his glory. God's inheritance will not be a little private party for each individual. Rather, as we join that great multitude of revelation, which no man could number from every nation, from every tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne, before the Lamb of God saying, worthy. And what is at the center of this inheritance? Yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is rising from the dead, secured this inheritance. The glory of the resurrection is God's determination to call people to himself that they might belong to him and he might belong to them forever. 
God's glorious inheritance, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then the third thing that he prays for us to know is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe, or rather in those who believe according to the working of his mighty strength, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If the first two parts of the prayer a request primarily point us forward to the hope that's to come and to the full inheritance that's to come. This one clearly defines how it is that God's people will make it to that day. What does he want us to know? The immeasurable greatness of God's power not towards, but in those who believe. The Bible gives us great displays of God's mega power. What is our supreme example of this mighty power of God at work? Is it the flood from Noah's day? Is it the parting of the Red Sea as the people of Israel fled Egypt? Is it the, is it the falling down of the, the walls of Jericho in, uh, the, in the book of Joshua? Is it the deliverance of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel? Is it Dan, is the Lord delivering, is it the Lord delivering Daniel out of the lion's den? Is it Jesus walking on water and healing the sick? Now, the pinnacle of God's power, according According to the apostle here, uh, the pinnacle of God's power at work is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God has done what we cannot do. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. First, he arrested, he stopped the process of natural decay, refusing to allow his Holy One to see corruption. And then he didn't just reverse the process, restoring the dead Jesus to life, but he transcended it. He raised Jesus to an altogether new life, immortal, glorious, and free, which nobody had ever experienced before and which nobody has ever experienced since. Now, can you see the amazing reality of what he says? The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in every person who believes in Jesus Christ. Do you see why I said our desires and our, our hopes and our longings are too small? We really don't grasp, grasp the, the fullness of what God has given us in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's prayer is necessary. That's why Paul's prayer was necessary. He notice he's not praying for a fresh blessing. There's no need to pray for a fresh blessing. He's already praised God for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This is a prayer for knowledge. 
This is a prayer not for power or hope or endurance or inheritance or riches, although all of those things are mentioned. It is a prayer for knowledge and understanding. It is a prayer that God would reveal to his people that which would, they would not know unless God revealed it through his spirit. That we might know the power that is actually already at work in us. Here's why we need to know that resurrection power is at work in those who follow Jesus Christ. We need to know it so that our eyes can be fixed on what matters most. You don't need resurrection power if you're in school to get good grades. You don't need resurrection power to get a promotion on your job. You don't need resurrection power to lose weight or get in shape. No. You don't need resurrection power to do a lot of things that you want to do. But we are desperate to know and exercise the resurrection power of God if you're going to do anything of value for the kingdom of God, either as individuals or most importantly, as a body. As a body. As a body that is pursuing the unity and diversity that we're called to pursue. N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, says it this way, Christians are already, as it were, resurrection people. Their bodies still need to be transformed, but in terms of the resurrection-related imagery of sleeping and waking, they're already awake and must stay that way. To use the term in our vernacular, you're already woke. You just need to stay that way. We need resurrection power to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace when things get rough. We need resurrection power to patiently endure suffering as a witness of Jesus Christ. You need resurrection power to truly love people who are unlovable. You need resurrection power to live free from the seemingly all-consuming preoccupation that you have with yourself. You need resurrection power not to seek power for yourself or for myself, but instead to use any power and authority we have for the benefit and blessing of others. We need resurrection power to live the life that God calls us to live, self-denying, self-sacrificing, truth-telling, praise-giving, promise-keeping, neighbor-loving, hope-filled, Jesus-believing, God-glorifying life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, (laughs) that we are in Jesus Christ already resurrection power, resurrection people. I pray for, for us, for everyone in this place, that we would know it and that we would be bold enough to live out of it, that we would take the kinds of risks to love neighbors well, to pursue unity in diversity, knowing that it's your power that is at work in us to the glory of your name. Amen.